Welcome to Labor Solidarity, which is an Empathy Media Lab production, highlighting the work of labor leaders and discussing historic struggles and the importance of organizing to new audiences with the goal of building international labor solidarity. My name is Evan Papp and my co-host is Elise Bryant. Today we are joined by Jay Naidu. Jay was at the forefront of the struggle against apartheid leading the largest trade union federation in South Africa. He also served as South Africa's Minister of Reconstruction and Development and Minister of Communication in the first post-apartheid cabinet of President Nelson Mandela. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. A great pleasure to be with you, Ivan and Elise. Thank you, Jay. It's a great to see you. And Jay, I read that you attended a speech by anti-apartheid activist Stephen Biko, and it had a profound impact on you. Could you talk about your background in organizing and about the anti-apartheid struggle, especially for those people who had no idea what it was like living under such a system? Well, you know, apartheid was described by the United Nations as a crime against humanity. In fact, a heresy was the word used because it institutionalized racism, racism that exists across the world even today, but in in a form that was legalized. And so my first experience of of apartheid was at four years old, when we were evicted from our home in a community in in Durban, in KwaZulu-Natal, alongside the coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we were the wrong color on the wrong side of the street, and this was the great social engineering experiment of the apartheid, masters at that point. And I grew up feeling incredibly angry to have lost this home, this community in which I'd grown up and can remember very clearly climbing trees and enjoying my childhood. And then suddenly it was wrenched away from me. And my parents never actually explained that to me until much later understood it was part of what they call removal of black spots in white towns. And so I I, I was very angry about that. But growing up under apartheid, after a while as a child, being refused access to many facilities, whether it was parks or buses or trains or cinemas, very similar to what happened in the struggle for civil rights in in, in the United States. And uh, I remember becoming incredibly angry with my parents and then incredibly angry with myself, almost blaming myself at being born with this color. And so a a sense of inferiority until, and that anger propelled me often into delinquency almost, until one day I went with my older brother to go and listen to a speech by Steve Biko in a crowded church hall surrounded by security police. And, and, and what he said there, I can remember as if it happened just yesterday, because he came on stage, an incredibly charismatic activist, and he said, we have nothing to lose but our chains, because the mind of the oppressed is the main weapon in the hands of the oppressor. And that gave me a political direction, and I often say that thank God we had a Steve Biko and that he had no money. So we didn't get stipends or free t-shirts or have to, you know, have organized our meetings in hotels and, you know, conference centers. He gave us a political direction. 
And that political direction, again, thank God we didn't have PowerPoint presentations and log frames in terms of what is professionalized civil society today. We, we just stood up and fought for what was right and fought against what was a grave injustice. And that's what you know, started me on my political journey. And in 1973, I was in Durban when the big strikes broke out amongst African workers who were still, it was still illegal for them to join registered trade unions. And it made a deep impression on me. And I suppose uh, I went on from that and joined the organization called the South African Students Organization, participated in the Soweto uprisings in 1976. I was in university at that time. And we were triumphant. We thought we had the apartheid state on, the back, on its back feet. And uh, we were smashed, actually. And when we were smashed, you know, many of us had to go into hiding, many fled into exile, many were arrested, tortured, and jailed. And so we, we reflected on that. And what we understood was that we lost because we had essentially left behind our parents, left behind workers, the rural people, women, and, and so we turned our attention late, in late 79 towards, in my case, volunteering in a fledgling union movement. The state was discussing opening up registered trade unions to black workers, but under control of the white counterparts, but excluded the vast majority of workers who were migrant laborers. And, and so I joined as a volunteer and, and then became an organizer and then rose through the ranks to become the general secretary of the food union in 1982. And at that point, repression was really intense in, you know, in, in South Africa. The thousands of people were being detained. The troops were in our townships. And uh, those fledgling trade unions, that were, which were very fragmented, were brought together by the pressure of repression. And that repression made us understand that unity was paramount if we were to survive, let alone free ourselves from apartheid. And so I was part of the transitional team towards building the new federation in 1985. In December, I was elected the founding general secretary of the Congress of South African Trade Unions. And that was what happened and what led to massive tumultuous changes in our country. Thank you, Jay. I had the honor and pleasure of visiting South Africa uh, three times and uh, working with South African trade unions and was in Durban. Here. And, and it was, I think it was then in Durban that I learned about the caste and class system within South Africa's racism. And, and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, this is an old tactic of the oppressor of and handed down from the colonial times, divide mm -hmm. and rule. Mm -hmm. And so they use ethnicity, they use tribe, they use uh, a classi race classification in order to create varying degrees of oppression. What was really important about Steve Biko was that there was a very clear division between black and white oppressed and oppressor, 
and justice and injustice. So black consciousness, which I was part of that movement, I recognize even though my lineage may come from the South of India 160 years ago, right. essentially I was part of the oppressed. And you know, in, in, in the factory floor, of course, like the rest of society was deeply stratified by class divisions, racial divisions, and, and even union movement was divided by race. So yes, we had to deal with many questions of division, of class division, race division, wealth divisions. And that was the basis of apartheid, you know, I mean, until much later, until we freed ourselves from apartheid, we still had job reservations, certain positions and particularly managerial positions were reserved for, for, for whites and excluded the majority of black people of every different color. So, you know, the issue of ethnicity and tribalism continues to bedevil in, in Africa as a whole. Yes. And the way it gets used as an instrument to continue our oppression or exploitation. So that's very much a reality. At one point, you know, entering the union movement as a volunteer in, in the late 70s, I actually went to go and work in a factory. Uh, a textile factory. And even at, in that factory, the departments were divided by race. So here we are organizing workers, particularly workers which we broadly classify as black and oppressed, which included Indian workers and colored workers. There were still divisions, you know, that, that were encouraged and ignited and fueled by the system. So we had to, you know, fight these type of battles at every level of society, at every level in terms of the Group Areas Act, as I you know, mentioned earlier, they divided us by suburbs, they divided schools, they divided universities. I mean, it entrenched, it tried, apartheid sought to entrench division. Mm -hmm. And that divisiveness still continues today across the world. Yes. The way in which wealth, status, position, race, culture, sexual orientation, you know, language are used as tools to ensure that the populations are controlled through right. fear, through paranoia, and through repression. It's very much the DNA of today. Mm -hmm. So did your ancestors migrate from India? Well, if you look at the abolition of slavery in 1836, that okay. was the formal decision to abolish slavery. My ancestry, my great-grandmother came here in 1864 as an indentured laborer to work on the sugar farms. It was a more refined version, but still a version of slavery. Right. The brutalization, the exclusion, the the sexual harassment and rape of, of, of those indentured laborers that came. And so, yes, I mean, uh, if I, I look back in my lineage, actually my great-grandmother was a slave. And, and Gandhi, I, I brought this up because a brother named Bobby, who said I had to call him Bobby, not Bobby, <laughs> reminded me of this, and that's why Gandhi was in South Africa. And I was like, oh, I vaguely remembered it from the movie, but I just hadn't quite put it together. 
South Africa has the largest concentration of, of people that originated from India of any country outside of India. Wow. So what happened is that the first landing of people were indentured laborers working on the, sh on the sugar farms of KwaZulu-Natal. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. On the back of that, given that close to 150,000 arrived here in the 1860s, a new category of Indian traders came to South Africa, seeing an opportunity to grow businesses and and to address the needs of that indentured population. They came mainly from the north of India. Mm -hmm. And so Gandhi, when he came, came here to help Indian traders who were being, because they were so successful, being excluded by the apartheid state even then from, from the free market of competing with white traders. And because they were such good traders, the white traders wanted more restrictions based on them. So there are parts of the country, for example, the free state today in South Africa, where it was not even possible for Indians to stay there for longer than 24 hours. In many parts, there were passes that they had to carry as indentured laborers or people of Indian origin uh, and settlers. And so they were fighting a battle, particularly around their rights to trade and to operate as traders. But Gandhi, when he arrived, had no understanding of colonialism in those days, which actually carried the DNA of what later became legalized as apartheid. And so he got a first-class ticket and he sat in, a first, in the first-class compartment of the train in Durban. And in Peter Marisburg, he was booted out of the train because he refused to go to the third class, mm -hmm. which was reserved for, for Indians and Africans and people of color. And so that started his transformation. And he ended up organizing a passive resistance campaign. And eventually, you know, we say in South Africa that India sent us Gandhi and we sent them back Mahatma ah. with the political experience he gained here of Satyagrada which eventually became the main tool of building a liberation movement that freed India from the British Raj. Wow. So, Jay, do you have a book? I have, uh, I've written two books. The first book was really written as therapy when I left government in 1999 mm -hmm. and uh, feeling that things had not going in the direction that we had intended in, in fighting for the vision that we had. And so my wife, who's a writer, Lucy Paget, she's a French journalist I met here in 1990, and we've been married since then, and still happily married with three grandchildren, <laughs> so, and Yay. three beautiful children, boys and a girl. And so I, you know, I, I, I suppose she encouraged me to write, and, and then I published that, but later on, I, my, I, I remember having a conversation with my daughter who was around 21 then and saying, you know, is it possible that one day I could be a grandfather? <laughs> and, and she looked at me in all seriousness and said, Papa, you know, you have fought your whole life for social justice, 
and human dignity and human rights. Look at the world your generation is leaving us. One in which we are confronted as a generation with very little hope in our future, a climate crisis, corruption, even in your liberation movement. You have, your generation is essentially betrayed us. Mm. So it made me sit down and reflect on my life and my contribution and that of my generation. And I recognized that there was great honesty and authenticity in what she said. And she reflected an entire generation of particularly black youth in our country. And so I actually, you know, I had spent a lot of time traveling, you know, working on global malnutrition. And I spent a lot of time in, in, in the most fragile of countries, the epicenters of hunger being Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, which is India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh which are two of the main centers of hunger. And hunger to me was a barometer of democracy, of civilization, of progress. And if a billion people were going to bed hungry, then how can we claim to be a civilization? Mm. And so it made me reflect very deeply on, on change. And so the book I wrote was called Change, Organizing, tomorrow, today, mm -hmm. and how can we build an intergenerational dialogue and cooperation? And the book really was a reflection of voices from a grassroots level, from the countries I had visited and the communities I had worked with. And I felt that I could use, given my position and my, this, you know, the so-called credibility I have, use that voice to be a microphone of voices from a grassroots level. And so that was the book I wrote. And I'll, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. And there is that transition where you're resisting the government and then you become in the government. And I was very interested when I heard about your work in the reconstruction development program. And I also read somewhere that when money was going out for housing, uh, to help in the post-apartheid economic development for so many people that were left behind, there would be times where you would actually put billboards out and say, this is the amount of money going to this town from the government. This is a person to contact in the government if there's any problems. And there was some transparency and accountability. And could you talk about what the reconstruction development program was? And I know that there was some bitter bitterness at the end as it, it moved to this, this neoliberal gear program? Well, we, I didn't really want to go into government. You know, I, I didn't become a political activist because I felt that at some point, you know, I wanted to become a cabinet minister. You know, we had to make a decision essentially between what was right and what was wrong. Apartheid was wrong. It was a heresy and a crime against humanity. And we had a duty and obligation to stand up and challenge. When Nelson Mandela was freed on the 10th of February, 1990, I was one of the first people to arrive at his, at his prison home at Victor Fester. And he was the epitome of our struggle against apartheid. He was, he was our, our role model 
of sacrifice across the arc of his life that spans 67 years, a tremendous sacrifice, he continued to serve us selflessly. And so, yes, I was really anxious when, I'm, when, I, when I did meet him. But the remarkable thing about Nelson Mandela was his humility. And so when he, he greeted us at the door, in, like we're expecting this, gi this giant on the world stage, you know, a bit intimidated by it, you know, but here he was greeting us. Hello, my comrades, come here. Let me show you around the house that I have. And because they had now put him in a little house. And of course he was occupying the smallest room in the house because that represented the bulk of his life living in a prison cell the size of a average bathroom. And so, yes, you know, he inspired us and, and his generation inspired us by their servant leadership. Towards the end of the 80s in Kusatu, we recognized that one way or the other, we are going to paralyze the apartheid state. We had built a huge movement, movement of workers. It was a backbone of the anti-apartheid struggle within the country. And we had allied with the United Democratic Front, which represented thousands of grassroots community-based organizations and NGOs. And so we were confident. And even though in 1987, they bombed our headquarters, uh, a number of our, our, our regional offices were bombed. Many of our leaders were, were uh, detained, arrested, charged, and many were killed. We still were confident that we would see freedom in our lifetime. And towards the end of the 80s, Kosato began to ask itself a question. It's all very well that we're all sitting under one big tent in our fight for a simple principle of one person, one vote in a democratic, non-racial, non-sexist South Africa, which was led by the liberation movement, the African National Congress. But we were an independent organization. And so after much discussion and debate within Kusatu, we decided that given the ANC's track record, given its, its leadership, given its commitment to the working class, you know, the trade union movement is not a political party. We do not ask people their political affiliation before they become a union member. But as a working class that is organized, we had political aspirations. And so we had to choose a party that would best represent our aspirations and hopes. And that was the African National Congress. But we also recognized that there were many different you know, people within the ANC, from, you know, from capitalists to black capitalists, to traders, to businessmen, to you know, to communists, to socialists, it was a broad coalition. And what we felt as, as COSATU, as a trade union movement, is that we want to make sure that our desires, our hopes are not diluted by other sections of society. And so we started discussing what would replace apartheid. And out of it came a a, a view that we should, in allying ourselves to the ANC and the Communist Party, we should outline a program of action. 
We called it the Reconstruction Pact. We're a movement and our actions in the South African context paralyzed the apartheid state because the Archelis heel of the apartheid state was the factory floor. They could close down townships, they could occupy schools, but they couldn't root out the organization on the shop floor because it was not based on leaders or on officers and bureaucrats. It was based on tens of thousands of shop stewards at the factory floor, within the mine shafts, in the shop floor. And so we had a power. We were an army. And we also had a tremendous influence, not just our members, but the members' families and all of them linked to those families. So essentially, when we called a national strike, the country closed down. That was the power Pasato wielded. And so we recognized that power and said, well, if we are going to do a deal with you, what do we get in return as the workers? And so we had put forward a very broad range of demands, the right to strike, the changes in the labor market that created a sense of uh, equity and address some of the fundamental challenges around you know, working conditions, the right to strike. But we went broader than that and said, we have other aspirations around how the economy should work, you know, how we should restructure the socioeconomic fabric of our country. And so we put these demands together in a reconstruction pact and started in discussions and negotiations with the ANC and the Communist Party. And eventually we agreed that's what would constitute the reconstruction and development program. And that program then became the election manifesto for the ANC, and which won us a landslide victory. But Kosato also in 1993, elected me to lead 20 trade unionists from Kosato on an ANC ticket into parliament. Of course, this caused a great consternation among certain sections of the ANC who felt that this is too undemocratic. You know, we were imposing our will as a labor movement on the political party. And we said, yes, actually, that's what we are going to do. And we negotiated and agreed that. And so a number of us went back into parliament. And this is when Nelson Mandela asked me to serve in his cabinet, at first to be the labor minister. And I said, Comrade Mandela, you know, really, you know, this is too conflicted a position for me to take, you know. I've been serving general secretary of Kosato. And so eventually he asked me, what would you want to do? And I said, well, I've been the coordinator of the reconstruction development program that rose out of the, out of the trade union movement and I want to be the one responsible for the implementation of it. And that's when he proposed that I become a very long title called Minister Without Portfolio Responsible for the Reconstruction Development Program in the Office of the President. And so we then felt victorious because we felt that we now had a program that reflected not just the hopes and dreams of the of the workers, but of the poor in general. They excluded uh, population who were the majority. But we had to set up the office from the beginning. 
you know, and, and then we had to understand that, you know, the ANC, like any political organization, is not homogeneous. There are factions within it. You know, there are, there are people that went into exile, many of them believing they were the government in exile. There are people who went to, to prison, and there were people like us in the trenches of different forms of mass struggle. And all of us were bringing our issues to the table. And you know, that's why, in a sense, the first two years, we were trying to change a country at every level of society. We had de-racialized politics, but it didn't mean that apartheid was gone. The Mandela generation delivered us a constitutional democracy at the heart of the constitution was a commitment to deal with the legacy of apartheid, whether it came to the land issues, whether it came to education and training, health access, or whether it came to the economy. And so what happened as we began to implement that, of course, battles broke out, not between us and other political parties who were part of the government of national unity, but within the liberation movement itself. And that's where, you know, one of the major dominant influences who are always suspicious of people who had a pedigree, not coming out of a traditional political liberation movement, but coming out of trade unions or, you know, community-based activism. There's always been a friction uh, and a tension between these different elements. And that's where, you know, I recognize that the dominant faction was not committed to the same vision that we were. And the sum total of what you said in 1996, after two years, the reconstruction development program gets closed down. What many activists call the original sin and gear, a macroeconomic program focused on financial indices rather than the reconstruction and development program, which focused on needs of and gear triumphed. And that battle, that's what history is about. Yeah, and I, I'm sure Elise could say some things about this too. Within the United States, the Democratic Party once came out of the New Deal, supporting a lot of labor. And now it, in some ways, we have a president who's the most pro-labor vocal president that I've seen in my lifetime. But at least why doesn't the AFL-CIO get some Democratic people to, to run, like essentially have the AFL-CIO go to the Democratic Party and say, you're going to run these people and get the labor moving? Is there any? <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, the party system right now is just so taken over by a neoliberal framework. And, and we're trying to figure out how we can make actual gains in power with a pro-labor approach. And it, it just seems like getting our ass kicked uh, left and right. So I don't know, Elise, if you have anything on well, that. You know, I think that, and I, I've never been asked this question before, Evan, but in reflecting it in terms of South Africa, and this was my, this was my you know, experience. And, and what I, I felt was like, the, in the trade union movement in South Africa, there was a whole consciousness about caste, class, and racism that was acknowledged. It wasn't like, oh, this is a little something we're going to do on the side, right? It was part of the work and that understanding that that work was also political. 
So we are, we endorse candidates, but we don't run candidates. And we don't, in the United States, we don't run ourselves. And uh, why? <laughs> I, and I think, I think it's like this whole idea that work is over here in this little channel over here, and government is in this little channel over here, and then race, class, and that, we don't, we don't even talk about class in our country, so, and we don't not caste, but there's something else over here, and they're separate entities, whereas I think in South Africa, it was all, it was the whole fabric, not just pieces of the fabric. Do you agree, Jay? Yes, no, absolutely, Lisa. I mean, you know, apartheid used racial discrimination as an instrument to maintain a cheap labor system. Mm -hmm. So the core of apartheid was a cheap labor system based on black exploitation. The, that was the content, the form it took was an institutionalized system of racism. You know, now, if you look and reflect on politics today, the political system is broken. And, and, and we labor under the delusion that major political parties will, even if they articulate a labor position or a position that is pro-poor, are actually committed to doing something about it. You know, I think that the sooner we recognize that, the, you know, the sooner we're going to end a global system today that has created inequality that has never been seen in the history of humanity. You know, if you look at the COVID pandemic and how it's been handled, in this pandemic, the 1% has made more than $5 trillion dollars while hundreds of millions of people have been plunged into poverty, lost their jobs, lost their homes, lost their pensions, and where the future looks bleak. Because this is something that we will have to confront as workers. You know, that the world has changed forever. The production line that I knew as an organizer in the 1980s does not exist in most cases today because of the technological revolution, because of artificial intelligence, because of 5G printing, because in fact, the bosses really need workers because machines can do a lot more work and more efficiently. So we, we're in a situation where collective bargaining system has been wrecked. So if I look at South Africa, if you look at Marikana, the biggest bloodstain on our post-apartheid democracy in which mine workers were shot and killed by police. You know, if you look at that and identify the roots of the conflict there, is that rock drill miners, for example, were never employed by the company. They were outsourced. So cleaning is outsourced, you know, security is outsourced. So, Whereas in, in the 80s, we'd enter a factory floor and there was one employer. Today, there may be a dozen employers on one shop floor. And increasingly, the, the economy, the formal economy is being outsourced. It's been informalized. And so we have to recognize that the collective bargaining system that made us tremendous gains in the 1980s and the 1990s actually has a fundamental flaw today. 
because young workers and the informal sector is not what we organize, the traditional trade unions. And, and if you look at Africa, probably 90% of employment is informal. There are exceptions in countries like South Africa or North Africa, but even here in South Africa, one of the biggest struggles of workers is to fight against outsourcing, which removes the benefits unions have traditionally negotiated and opens up the field of exploitation to a level that, again, we have never seen. So we have to start thinking anew. How do we deal with these new circumstances? What are our new organizing tactics? And again, we have to ask ourselves the question, Elise, why are young people not joining trade unions? And increasingly trade unions themselves have become a bureaucracy, institutionalized, and no longer reflecting the interest of the grassroots or of the shop floor. If you look at again at South Africa, the union movement is more fragmented today than it was under apartheid. And increasingly leaders of the trade union use it as a conveyor belt to get into politics because that's where the money will be made. So if you look at it, Politics 101 teaches you follow the money. And even at the level of trade unionism, we are seeing this happening. The way in which collaboration is taking place between a corporatist system of collective bargaining, between big business, big trade unions, and of course, big government. And the majority of work has been left behind or seeing no reason why they should give the money in union fees to a union that does very little to protect them. So I think this is a moment as things fall apart because the global system is falling apart. It is broken. And out of the crumbling of those system, new thinking has to come, a new paradigm of thinking, a new beginning that begins to place the critical issues that young people feel strongly about, like my daughter, at the center of our agenda, and that is ecology, the environment, that is building peace movements and ending this perpetual aggression and militarism that is now leading to a new Cold War, to a new arms race, and even a threat of a nuclear war, and to end a system in which the current global system is been manipulated to put us into fear and paranoia in order that we can be controlled. This is George Orwell, 1984 on steroids. And we've got to recognize that, that we are fighting a battle that will determine whether the 1% becomes so powerful that we will lose sovereignty. We will lose control on our own bodies and an alliance and a collaboration between big pharma, big business, big tech, big social media companies, and a 1% creates a new slide into totalitarianism in which we are the modern day slaves. This is the future that they want. And this is the future we have to resist. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally, totally agree. Yes. Now, I want to go back history for just a moment. I, I was in South Africa the year of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. And I, I think here in the United States, we can't even get critical race theory 
out and you know is is a discussion on on the academic level much less in the in the school systems there's such a backlash against it what was what was the what were the repercussions what was the how did it impact the labor movement specifically but the, the community in general in south africa after the truth and reconciliation commission we had a a very important choice to make because remember while the anti-apartheid movement and the mass struggle within the country paralyzed the apartheid state, we didn't defeat them. Mm -hmm. We created a stalemate. And in a stalemate, we had to find a solution. We were already in a low-scale civil war in this country, rapidly sliding into a full-scale racial civil war, which much of the world actually media were predicting. And, and so we had to make a, a, a very important decision. Do we continue this trajectory, which would lead to enormous loss of life and damage to, to, to property, as we've seen in the current conflicts around the, around the world, whether it's Ukraine today or Iraq or Afghanistan or South Sudan or Libya, you know, or do we rise above it? And so given the extraordinary leadership of, of, of Nelson Mandela and his generation, given our strength and credibility on the ground, we made a decision to, instead of stressing the differences between us, trying to find the common ground. Our demand was very simple. One person, one vote in a democratic, non-racial, non-sexist South Africa. The National Party, our chief protagonists, came to the table with a demand for veto rights for white people, which we, of course, rejected. And there was a fierce contestation at a point where violence spread on a scale we had never seen before in the country following the release of Mandela, orchestrated by those forces that wanted to stop the march of democracy. And we decided that let us reach out and we convinced our opponents to agree to that demand. So that's what the 1994 election was. Essentially, we had won what we fought for. Didn't mean we ended apartheid. And, and so the work still had to be done. And so it was in that context that we look at it and say, what do we have, you know, what do we have to do now? And so how do we deal with the atrocities that took place? And that's where we had a choice between a Nuremberg trial approach, which is what happened after the Second World War, or approach of reconciliation, but truth. So what is reconciliation? It is first of all, an apology that what was done is a heresy and should never be repeated again. It's an acknowledgement that it was wrong. And then it is dealing with the consequences, which is basically based on repairing the damage reparation strategy and making sure that the families, particularly families who lost loved ones, husbands and sisters and brothers and children who had disappeared after, you know, basically what assassinated or killed by the apartheid state, knew the truth. So we we created a truth and reconciliation commission as a stage towards building a, a, a new nation, 
a new identity in which we recognize that we're deeply wounded. And that wound has to be based, you know, the, the solution to that wound had to be based on us recognizing that there is been atrocities. Acknowledging those atrocities, recognizing the other, because that's what racism is about. It's, it's othering other people that you are less important, you are less human because of the color of your skin or because of some other tool of discrimination. And so that wound had to be addressed. Again, Archbishop Tutu led the process, did an enormously fantastic job at getting the truth, but we failed in dealing with the question of reparations because that was a political decision. And while the TRC called for that, we never implemented it in the state. It was too costly, it, both in political terms and economic terms, and we swept it under the carpet. So the wound continued. And every incident we had after that has just caused that wound to fester until it blows up into conflict, into a conflict that we see today across our country. We are probably the country that is the protest capital of the world because we've lost that constituency in the ground that had trust of people. People don't trust politicians. They don't trust the ANC. The ANC has betrayed us in the most deeply way, deep way, that even at the highest level of, of, of office of the president, we had a period in which, you know, of state capture, in which important factions of the ANC facilitated the hijacking of state corporations and the looting of our national treasury. So that's the consequence we are dealing with. That's the wound that we didn't deal with in 1994. That's the wound you have in the United States where it's not been recognized, the genocide against the indigenous population when the settlers arrived in North America, the slavery of black Americans, and that wound continues to fester. So what you're sitting with in the United States is two countries almost at war with each other, two nations exploited, oppressed, excluded, which now includes you know, people of color, whether they're Hispanic or Afro-American or minorities. And those are deep division. These are the wounds that afflict humanity. So again, until we deal with that wound, and find the way in which we can heal that wound. And therefore, there has to be a healing methodology introduced into our work of activism. We have to heal ourselves within ourselves before I can heal my relationship with you, Elise, or you, Eva. So we have to start at the personal before we get to the interpersonal, before we get to the cultural, before we get to the systemic. This is the challenge of humanity today. We have been a civilization driven from that original sin of slavery and colonization that has created a deep wound in which we waged war while Western colonizers waged war, not just on other people, created the basis and the foundation of racism which had to other other people as inferior in order to go into their lands and loot their countries and rape and pillage. And, and that, that narrative still continues today and influences globally then. So 
know, in my in my mind, in this recent decade, I've asked myself many questions. You know, why did we fail? What did we miss? And I've understood one thing: that changing a system is not rocket science. It may take decades, it may take centuries, but eventually change will come. But what stops the oppressed when they get to power becoming the new oppressors? What creates a condition, a malady, a disease that a liberation movement eats its own children? How can we talk about progress today when we are committing ecocide, we are sitting in an ecological emergency. We've just had over 600 people die in flooding in Durban. Tremendous destruction of infrastructure and a direct consequence of economic growth strategies that are today dominant in the world. The link between environmental degradation, pandemics, war and increasing starvation, drought caused by drought, caused by conflict over grazing land, caused by food systems collapsing, is all linked back to the growth path that is dominant today. And that's capitalism. Capitalism has now created a nightmare for not just the current generations, but for unborn generations. And I'm not arguing that socialism or communism is the answer because I think we have passed ideology. All of those ideologies waged war against nature. And what we're asking today people to stand up is to recognize that we have committed a great sin. There's a great flaw in how we've seen civilization. And what we have to know now is how do we go back, for example, in Africa, the cradle of humanity. 500 years of colonization, of slavery, of imposition of religion on us has sought to erase our indigenous knowledge systems, our technologies. And if you look at the technologies that today dominates the world, you know, all of that arose in Africa. You know, the earliest tools of music, of language, of writing, of agriculture, of civilization, you know, which were dominant when Europeans were running around in skins, basically, you know. So how do we go back to knowing who we are rather than trying to be a poor, you know, a poor photocopy of some Hollywood model or some, you know, European model or East, you know, Asian model, you know? Who are we? And that's the question I ask myself, that in fact, the most important change we need to talk about today is how do we change people? Because today we have become the predatory species. We destroy everything we touch. And we do that at the risk of our grandchildren and the unborn generations to come. So the, the question confronting all of us today is what defines us being human. Why am I here in this human experience? And surely it is to do something worthy with our lives, of service, of working in partnership with Mother Earth. 
Now, if you go back to the villages that our ancestors came in, that was the DNA of that ancestral indigenous wisdom. People saw themselves as part of nature, not apart from nature. They didn't look at a forest and look at and see timber to be cut down and sold to make money. They saw the spirit of the forest, the spirit of the river, the spirit of the mountain, the spirit of the desert. Now, if we've forgotten those lessons and we sacrifice this in an insane rush at consumerism and, and rampant consumerism that is destroying the very earth, which is a conscious sentient being, we are destroying the very earth that gives us life. Then what are we in terms of intelligence? Because we are the only species that has an intelligence in which we have free will and we're given the ability to make choice. We can either evolve beyond the limitations, the cravings, the desires, and the ego of the mind and this body or this intellect and become supramental. Or we descend to our basic animal instincts and we kill each other and everything that we share our planet with. That cannot be the future that the working class or any human being wants for their grandchildren and their, the future of generations of our humanity. Jay, thank you so much. I know uh, we're running out of time. Uh, very, very important words that were spoken. And uh, organizer starve, I believe, was one of the sayings and slogans in South Africa during some of the struggle. And the question is never, what are you fighting against? The question is, what are we fighting for? I think these are the conversations we got to be having. Of course, things that I say are going to raise a lot of eyebrows. But we don't have the time any longer, even in the least, to waste on niceties and diplomacy. You know, at, at this time, my concern is not about the future of Mother Earth. She's been here four and a half billion years. She's seen five natural extinctions already. The last one, 60 million years, when an asteroid hit Mother Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs. But this sixth extinction, which we are deep into already, has been caused by our greed, our arrogance. And so today, we are not discussing about the future of Mother Earth. You know, if it takes a, a hundred million years to recover from our stupidity, well, that's what she will do. What we are really discussing at this moment, we as humanity have earned our right to be here. And whether we've used collaboration between all of us and every other species we share our planet with to create a new beginning. This is the moment that's facing us. And history will judge us very harshly if we beat around the bush and avoid these real issues and confront those that seek to dominate us in different ways, but with the same DNA as slavery and colonization. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jay. Nkosisi Keleli Africa, Malopaka Nkutandawayo, Izwaimi Tandazo, Yekuto, Nkosisi That's our prayer. May God help us all. Ooh.